0: In this episode, I chat with Dr. Friedman, a professor of chemistry at MIT in Boston, Massachusetts. We discuss her pathway to chemistry, the challenges of teaching and mentoring, and her coolest failure. You're also welcome to share the video recording of this podcast posted on YouTube with your students. The questions I ask are based on submissions from space club elementary and middle school kids from across the country. Enjoy. Hey, I'm Claire. And I'm Natasha. From college roommates to co-founders of Vivify STEM, pull up a seat as we discuss our experiences as aerospace engineers, teachers, moms, program directors, curriculum writers, graduate students, and friends. This is the STEM Space Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Space Club Career Chats. Happy 2023. I'm so excited to see all of you guys. Uh, You've been submitting your different projects, so it sounds like you're back in school doing some really cool things. So to kick off our 2023 Space Club Career Chats, we have a special guest. Um, So Dr. Friedman, you, you read some of her bio, you might have checked out her website. She is a professor of chemistry at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. So that's MIT in Boston. We're actually, they're having some cold weather. If any of you are in the Boston area or around the Northeast, I know there's a lot of snow happening. So hopefully everybody's staying warm, Um, but let's first play a video because there's this really cool video that she has from her lab that I want to share with you to get some insight on the kind of work she does. And then I'll bring her on to ask your questions.
1: A hundred years ago, we had the first quantum revolution. And during that time, scientists uncovered the quantum nature of the universe. We're now living in the second quantum revolution. We've progressed from observing the quantum nature of the universe to controlling it. My name is Dana Friedman, and I'm a synthetic inorganic chemist. My lab works on harnessing the atomistic control inherent in synthetic chemistry to impact fields that have traditionally been in the realm of physics. Under this umbrella, we work on areas such as designing molecules for quantum information science and creating new bonds at pressures comparable to the core of planets such as Mars. Quantum systems require a tremendous amount of precision. Synthetic chemistry has a phenomenal opportunity in terms of quantum technologies. If you take a tablet of aspirin, you take for granted that every molecule in that tablet is completely identical and the distance between every atom in the molecule is identical across molecules. That level of atomic precision is transformative in quantum information science, where being able to control atomic position, identity, and function as a collection of three attributes is effectively unmatched by other quantum approaches. Quantum information science is a revolutionary new approach to sensing, computation, communication. In each of these areas, we have the potential to address challenges that are at the forefront of science. The really exciting thing about quantum information science isn't the solutions to the problems that we've already defined. It's the ability to define new questions and answer them with an entirely new set of tools.
0: So that is a nice video that shows some of her work, but a little bit more about her background. So she has a bachelor's degree from Harvard University, a PhD from the University of California at Berkeley, and as I mentioned, she's currently a professor at MIT, also the associate editor for the Journal of the American Chemical Society. And she told me that when in a, not in a lab communicating with her squid magnet meter, I'm going to ask her what that is, uh, she likes to read contemporary fiction and walk to faraway places. So Dr. Friedman, let me bring you on so we can say hello. How are you doing?
1: Thank you. I'm doing well. Uh, always so embarrassing to watch oneself on video.
0: Um, I know. (laughs) But okay, tell me, what is the squid thing? Like, I'm imagining like this animal in the ocean. Like, what is this?
1: I know. And physicists have the most evocative names for um, things. A squid is a superconducting quantum interference device. Uh, It's an acronym. And actually, It is both uh, the unit, the detector, which is used to measure really small magnetic moments in uh, giant commercial devices. So something um, the size larger than a refrigerator is the closest immediate analogy that occurs to me. But it's also one of the units um, which uh, comprises a quantum computer, one of the strongest candidates for that. Not... ones we work on, uh, that's also a squid. And so these are um, really fantastic devices that take, uh, in an approximation, they take a current that doesn't decay at all um, and measure what happens if you put a little hole in that
0: current. Okay, interesting. So not at all the squid that I was thinking of. (laughs) No, it's, It's unfortunate. Those squids are
1: potentially more interesting and mysterious.
0: (laughs) Well, it also makes it fun to have unique acronyms that relate to different things. And I'm sure it's all over science that whenever you get into the world of chemistry, you have to learn to speak this language. It's like a different language. Um, And that's where there's sometimes a barrier between what scientists like you do and what the public can understand because we don't have that vocabulary yet you know like we don't know what all these words mean so I'm hoping in our conversation we can unpack a little bit of what you do so the students can like better understand it so thank you again for being here and I want to just start with your story there was several questions about your upbringing what was your inspiration who introduced you to chemistry so just tell us a little bit about your backstory uh yeah so um
1: I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and I was really fortunate for a lot of reasons, um, supportive family, community, etc. But the first um, major thing that I did with science, actually, I um, I worked at our local observatory in high school. And wow. this is probably um, potentially instructive or terrifying for um, this audience, but one of my formative memories was being, uh, I think, a freshman in high school and running a part of a summer camp for uh, fifth graders. Oh and in that, the person who was supposed to teach the fifth graders how to, oh my goodness, uh, this is so many years ago, but how to um, it, how to properly process photos. Uh, so from photographic film using cameras didn't show up. And so the person in charge of the program took me, put me in a room with 10 fifth graders and said, figure it out and teach them. Oh my gosh. That was terrifying. I bet. graders But it was amazing. Uh, And the ability to learn on your feet and to teach and engage and see the process of developing the film with the chemical baths and the engagement of those fifth graders. I think that that's part of the reason that I ended up both going into science and fundamentally becoming an educator is
0: how much I valued that experience. Um,
1: That is cool.
0: And so this student here, there is a team. I love the name Nebula from Washington they were at, asking who or what introduced you to chemistry. So besides that experience, were there any like teachers that helped you along the way or other experiences that really got you into chemistry? Um, you know, I,
1: um, I didn't know that I wanted to be a chemist until I was in college. Um, really? Yeah. I, I knew I loved science, but I thought that I wanted to be a physicist, but I think it's because I didn't understand the, um, what chemistry was and what physics was. And it's okay to have no idea what you want to do until all of those things are clarified. Uh, So in college, I um, actually the (laughs) the honest story is I signed up for intro chemistry. And I went to office hours on the first day. And it was me and a lot of fairly competitive students who had a focus on a career in medicine in Mm -hmm. office hours. And I kept asking questions about the curriculum. And I only realized this in retrospect. At the time, I had no idea what was happening. And the other students were asking questions about their grades. And at the end of office hours, um, the professor took me aside and said, get out of this class. Just you can place into the next class. Don't take a general chemistry class. Um, you should not be in this class. And I, I don't think it was because I was particularly brilliant or insightful. I think that the nature of my interaction with the material was fundamentally different. And mm-hmm. so what got me into chemistry was being told to get out of chemistry.
0: Wow. <laughs> That's a cool story, though. And I'm glad that professor like saw that in you and, and kind of fostered and said she is so curious about it that he wanted, to, or, he or she wanted to push you more. Um,
1: yeah, or he wanted to get me out of his class because I was True. in
0: office hours, either <laughs> way. OK, so then let's talk about what you do now. Um, so I have a picture. I believe this is your lab. Is that correct? Yes, Are these- uh, the
1: beaver is the MIT mascot, Tim. Um, ah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so tell us more. Tell us what you guys do. What is the research on?
1: Yeah, so um, chemistry is magic, and this is part of what got me into chemistry in the first place. The idea that there's this deep connection between structure and function, and with chemistry, uh, you can tell atoms where to go. You can say, okay, I want this atom here and this atom here, and that'll make them have a specific function. That'll make, um, maybe it'll make the molecule blue. Let's say if you put an atom here and an atom here and an atom here, you get blue blue is a property. Um, you know, blue specifically occurs if you're absorbing a wavelength, but blue is a property. And that ability to design something and say, I want it to have this specific property, or I don't understand what happens when I put these atoms here and how we change this property. That's what you can do with chemistry. And so we use that ability to, um, make systems for kind of funny sounding applications like uh, quantum technologies, or um, to make the first chemical bonds in a system to understand how electrons move between two different atoms.
0: And what does that look like in practice? So this school in Illinois asked, what's a day in the life of your job? So are you in a lab doing experiments all day? What does your day look like?
1: So that's a great question. In academia, the progression of a researcher goes from doing science to doing nothing. Um, So as an undergrad, you spend all of your time in the lab executing experiments. As a grad student, you start to divide that time between designing experiments, thinking about what the goal of the experiment is, and then executing it. So going into the lab and, you know, in a lab coat, mixing things, filtering things, um, not too different than cooking, but a little bit different than uh, cooking. Um, and then as a, after you get a PhD, uh, if you want to go into academia, you do something called um, a postdoctoral fellowship. So after your doctoral fellowship and there um, you get a little bit of a higher level perspective. So you should be not just designing the experiment in front of you, you should be designing a larger swath of the research that you're working on. And then um, after that, my job is effectively directing the lab. And so after a given amount of time you really move out of the lab and your role switches from uh, designing experiments having a higher level perspective of the goals of the lab uh, and raising money for the lab and managing people and Mm -hmm. so realistically and and of course teaching um realistically a very large percent of my time goes into raising money uh for the lab but the form that you raise money in is you come up with ideas and you come up with a pathway to achieve those ideas and then you write it down and you convince someone that you're right and that's really my job
0: yeah that's so interesting it that's a great way to explain being a professor it's like you have it's almost like you're running a business because you have to bring in revenue to do your research which is your output of the business and so the people we see in this picture are those that are in the lab often doing yeah. those experiments. Okay, so then Southern I'm Space sorry, Girls. There's, there's just Mrs. one more thing I want no, to add to No, please,
1: go. Um, something I wouldn't have known for years is that um, the reason you raise money is to pay the salaries of the graduate students and mm-hmm. postdocs in the lab. If you go to grad school in the sciences, you don't pay to go to school. You get paid to go to school.
0: And so that's something worth remembering. Unlike medical school, where you have to pay to go to school, you can go become a, go to chemistry, get a PhD in chemistry, and someone will pay your salary. Yeah, that's great to know. Okay, so Southern Space Girls in Mississippi ask, what is the most challenging part of your job?
1: I think in two areas. One is that fundamentally you're managing people, and in any situation where you interact with people... um, Maybe it's just because I'm a scientist, but people are always the hardest part. Getting it right, uh, being the best teacher and the best mentor and um, making sure that you are supporting, encouraging and also enabling growth uh, requires a tough mixture of um, feedback, support and optimism, which Mm -hmm. can be hard to. Achieve and every person has d- a different background and different needs, and meeting that is probably realistically the hardest part of my job. Um, but on the other side, coming up with new ideas and um, making sure that the lab is always working on problems where we really want to know the answer. We want to see what will happen in the next experiment and not get complacent. Um,
0: that's hard, but it doesn't feel hard because it's fun. That's interesting. And so you've talked about you know this really, to us, seems like a crazy hard science. And then the most challenging part is the people and the interactions. And I think that's great for kids to hear, because often when you think about a science pathway, you're like, I just have to hit the books and study really hard. But on the other hand, I want students to think about how you communicate is so important and practicing teamwork because here's your team here that you have to work with. That is the other piece a lot of people forget about in STEM. What do you think? I, I absolutely
1: agree and you know that's something that was really a struggle for me. I knew that I loved science, but I thought I don't want a solitary job where I don't work with people I really value interactions with others and I thought about how much my um, my study group in college for inorganic chemistry, which is the area of chemistry that I now study how much it helped me and I thought, mm-hmm. well, I don't want to be at a point where I don't have people to bounce ideas off of and to tell me when I'm completely wrong because the way I process information, if somebody tells me I'm completely wrong, that tends to drive creativity in me as opposed to um, uh, resignation, but other people operate differently. And I wanted to make sure that I was in an atmosphere where I could continue to grow my science through interactions with people. And there are areas where there are fewer interactions with people. Um,
0: but yeah. fewer and fewer these days. And, and that's a stereotype I think people have, is you're going to work in a lab as a scientist by yourself. Often we hear about scientists in textbooks like, I don't know, Isaac Newton. You know, and you think there's just one person thinking about everything and doing experiments on their own but you're an example of that's not really how it works in reality.
1: Yeah. Anyone that you see with a research lab isn't working alone. And even friends of mine that are mathematicians or theoretical physicists interact with others constantly. If you look at the amount of time scientists spend at conferences and traveling, all of that is the goal of interacting with others, facilitating collaborations, and expanding your ideas. There are different forms of interactions, but... Being a scientist is definitely an area which is full of human interaction.
0: Okay, so now we're going to ship to Rapid Fire. And this is where I'm going to just throw some interesting questions at you. And you're going to try to give me like your 10, 20 second answer. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. Okay. What is your favorite thing about your
1: job? Uh, discovering new science the day that you see that first little bit of a result that tells you something new has happened. Awesome.
0: What are your hobbies outside of work? Um, I run and I have a three-year-old who you could call a hobby. I have a two and a four-year-old so I can relate. They're definitely (laughs) a hobby. (laughs) What is your coolest
1: failure? Oh my goodness. I fail every day. Um, my coolest failure. (gasps) I don't know if it's cool, but we, um, we had an experiment that kind of broke. And when it, in the process of breaking, we generated a higher temperature than the failure point of the instrument. When we did that, we made a compound that a lot of people have been interested in for a really long time, but we can't reproduce it because we broke the, it it was a failure of the instrument. And... So we've had this result, but it doesn't exist until you reproduce it, because that's science. So we know that it's possible to make this thing that a lot of people want to make, but we can't do it again because it involves a catastrophic breaking of the instrument, and we also can't figure out by what mode the instrument broke catastrophically. That's incredible. Wow.
0: (laughs) I love that. When you were a child, what job did you want at first?
1: Oh my goodness. Who remembers? I think uh, my parents tell me when I was very young, I wanted to be an astronaut, Um, Mm -hmm. but I don't like heights or roller coasters or any of those things. So I don't think that's a very good fit. Um, I I wanted to be a scientist for Mm -hmm. almost my whole life. Um, An astronomer or a chemist or... um, something where yeah. I got to understand the universe around me.
0: Awesome. What is one pro and one con of your job? Um, okay, this is a really boring answer.
1: So <laughs> one pro <laughs> is um, that you get to work with um, these amazing, excited students to understand things about the world that nobody knows. Uh That is just amazing and awesome. And the reason to be a scientist. Um, A con is paperwork, to Mm -hmm. be honest. The administrative overhead, even in my own short career, it is ridiculous. For example, to submit a proposal to the federal government, it's 15 pages of science and about 150 pages of um, (laughs) supplemental documentation. The time that I spend on things like <laughs> supplemental documentation that I'm sure is very important, and thank you to all of the federal agencies for <laughs> right.
0: is enough to make you want to throw something. My takeaway is that as a scientist, you still should be good at writing because you're gonna have to write.
1: Absolutely. My realistically, the majority of my time is divided between uh, teaching, mentoring. Um, writing and presenting. Those mm-hmm. are the things that I do.
0: Dr. Friedman, thank you again for sharing your story and some of your insights and your experience in science. Any final words for our space club kids out there? Oh, my goodness. No, you're
1: um, amazing getting so involved in actually contributing to experimental science at such a young age. And there's so much that you can do. Um even in the upcoming years. And I hope that you all find areas to work in that you love. I love that.
0: Well, I'm gonna let you go because I know it's snowing there. So I hope you have a safe drive home. And to the students out there, thank you so much for watching and I'll see you again next month and we'll do another raffle and have another awesome speaker, but goodbye for now. Hey listeners, we wanna hear from you. Do you have a quick tip on teaching STEM? Maybe how you store projects, where you get materials, or what not to do. Let us know and we can feature you and your tip on a future podcast episode. Head to vivifystem.com backslash quick tips and let us know your tips for teaching STEM.